0: Well, welcome, everybody. Um, last week, Pastor Matt began a series about the church, a very important series, and uh, he gave us some homework uh, from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. So I hope that everybody read it and is ready to talk about it next week. Um, you have a little reprieve if you didn't get your homework done. Um, he's going to continue that important series next week, and in the meantime, we're going to open um, a very specific part of the word today in Second uh, Timothy which is a letter written by Paul the Apostle to a young minister at the church of Ephesus who was struggling both personally and in his ministry and with others in the church. And Before we begin and break down those exact verses, I want to take some time to get some context for the letter and for the people involved in the letter. I'm struck, uh, as I've been studying through Paul's letters these last few months, about how rarely he uses... um, conditional statements in his writing, especially when he's writing to a specific person like Timothy instead of a church generally. He almost never says something like, this might happen, or it's possible that, or, or try this, Timothy, and see if maybe it works out. Um, there's a certainty in his, uh, in his words and in his writing, and that, Timoth- uh, that certainty can be seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, reflect on what I'm saying, this is Paul writing to Timothy, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. He doesn't suggest that God might, maybe, possibly, if he feels like it, consider giving Timothy insight. He says that with certainty, God will. And that certainty comes from a similar verse in chapter 1, verse 7, for the spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity or fear or anxiousness or indecision, but power, and with that confidence. So Paul is certain as he's writing. There's lots of certainty in the section of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. Secondly, Paul's not writing to the church here in this letter, as he often does in his other epistles, but he's writing about the church. He's writing to someone in the church, a leader, a a pastor, a teacher. But this letter is not just for teachers and pastors and leaders, which we'll get into in a few minutes. Paul here is writing to someone kind of behind the scenes of the church. This is sort of the director's commentary track on the the DVD of the church of Ephesus. And this is a church that is going to struggle, and it's going to descend and fail in a lot of ways, to the point where they go from being in grace to uh, being threatened with the removal of their lampstand in Revelation chapter 2 in just about 50 years. So the question arises, did Timothy in his ministry here, that he's being encouraged by Paul, fail? Or did Paul fail in leaving Timothy to lead the church there at Ephesus? Did Christianity fail in that church? Or did the Holy Spirit fail in that church? And I think we know the answer, but we're going to look at the verses themselves and, and, and see what they say about that. And I'm struggling to control the verses from my phone, so I'm going to just ditch that, and Jenny's going to take care of me back there. I appreciate that. <clears throat> so let's read those five verses here, just five verses, and with the grace of God, we'll get through all five. It's a tall order in, in 40 minutes, but we'll see. Second Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. It says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with stupid and foolish arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. These are the inspired words of God, and we're going to break them down one verse at a time this morning chap starting in verse 22 flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart this is very similar to something Paul said in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 6 verse 11 it says but you man of God flee from all this and pursue righteousness godliness faith love endurance and gentleness and so we see the need for Paul to reiterate and be persistent in his teaching and reminders to Timothy There are a lot of words in this section of Scripture this morning that we're going to need to define and get a better understanding of in order to see the pattern and get to the point that Paul is making in these few verses to Timothy. And we'll start with this one, not just because it's chronological, but because an understanding of this first verse is critical to understanding the rest of the section and the verses that follow. And we'll start with that first word, flee. That means to run continually away from something, not just run once. And if we stop and we think about it for a minute, we'll realize that we don't need to flee things that don't pursue us. You don't flee from a cliff, you just step away from it. You flee from things that chase you, from predators. And so the question there is, what are we fleeing? He tells us the evil desires of youth. And some of your translations will say youthful lusts, which I think is both a more interesting and more useful translation for this morning as we get into the depths of this, this passage. And I think there are some things that come to each of our minds when we think about that phrase, youthful lusts, the kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll sort of stuff that we tend to associate with youth and with a lack of inhibition. But why do we have to flee those? Because they pursue us, right? They're persistent. They chase us. They are predators. And they pursue us through our youth and into our middle years and into our older years. They don't relent. It's why we're continually fleeing. That's why he chooses the verb tense he does there. And is there anything more disturbing than seeing someone who isn't young exhibiting what we consider youthful lusts? You think about the awful phrase, dirty old man, a phrase that gives us the willies because it isn't right for someone old to be exhibiting youthful lusts that they should have outgrown by now, that they should have been fleeing. So what are some of these lusts? There are things you can lust after that are normally associated with youth. We can probably come up with a great list of those, especially any of you who have teenagers. But it's important to remember here that Timothy's not a teenager. Timothy's in his late 30s here. He's middle-aged, especially for that era. And yet he still needs to be fleeing youthful lusts because they continue to pursue. And we're not just talking about physical lusts here. We're talking about anything that's lusted after, money, uh, power, recognition, authority. One of the things that might be a youthful lust that Paul is commenting on to Timothy is this desire to be liked, that's something we associate with youth especially. And maybe that's what caused some of Timothy's troubles that Paul had to address in his first letter when he was afraid to kind of stand up to people who were teaching wrong doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, we can see that there. Or you may also lust after recognition as you get older. We see this in the workplace, right? One in the corner office, wanting people to know you're the guy who deserves the promotion. That should be a youthful lust. We should outgrow that. Another youthful lust might be the one, and this is the dangerous one, I think, in the church of Ephesus especially, which is the youthful lust of wanting always to be right. Now, I'm fleeing youth, whether I want to or not. We all are. I was going to cut my hair before I taught this morning, but every time I do that, the patches of gray are much more visible, so I decided to continue hiding them a little bit longer. But growing up doesn't just mean getting gray hairs. It's about maturing. And it doesn't mean that just because I'm getting older that I'm fleeing youthful lusts, because we're not talking about age, we're talking about maturity, and all these youthful lusts ought to be tempered as you get older. It doesn't absolve you being older from those youthful lusts because they pursue you. Now, some physical lusts may calm down as a result of biological aging processes, normal things, but those things that Paul was talking about fleeing from, greed and controversy and pride and ambition and jealousy and envy, these are the kind of things that I've often noticed most profoundly in people who are older than I am, probably because of the contrast that should be there. It's out of the ordinary context to see somebody who hasn't been able to flee from those youthful lusts. It's in contrast to what's right, and so it stands out more plainly. Now, getting older doesn't make you automatically wiser and less lustful any more than just being in the church on Sunday makes you any more sanctified and righteous. That's something that Pastor Matt touched on last week, and that will no doubt be a theme continuing forward in that series. Now, you might pick up a few improvements here and there just as a sort of accidental osmosis, but it's a fool's effort if you don't also put in the work to flee. And you can't just flee, you have to be going somewhere when you run, you can't just go in circles. So the second part of this verse, he says, flee the evil desires of youth and also pursue righteousness. That gives us a target to seek after, something to, again, continually run toward, not just once, but continually. As you're fleeing continually, you are continually running after these things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The first thing we're to pursue is righteousness. This word is in the Greek, ne, it's only ever translated as righteousness. And it means the state of something or especially someone that is as it ought to be, especially in a doctrinal sense, in a condition that is acceptable to God. So correct in thinking and in acting. You can sort of paraphrase it as simply the right thing or the right way. Now, where does this righteousness come from? Now, some people thought the law. Some people still think the law. That was a common theme Paul was railing against as he tried to introduce Christianity around the world. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and 31 say, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, there's that phrase again, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Galatians chapter 2, something similar, I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law then Christ died for nothing. Galatians chapter 5 says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. You're sensing a theme yet? One more in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So you see these things run into each other righteousness, and faith. And as we're pursuing righteousness, which comes from God on the basis of faith, we're also pursuing faith, the second thing in Paul's list. And the third thing in his list is love. Now, the love mentioned in verse 22 here is not the kind of love that we think of as love at first sight or a lustful love or even an emotional love. It's a love of choice, and that is of course, the only kind of love that you can actually pursue. You can't pursue love at first sight. It simply is. You can't pursue a love of puppies or hamburgers. It simply is, and it's delicious. The the hamburgers, not the puppies. (laughs) I should clarify my notes. (laughs) No, this this is the kind of love that takes work, that takes effort. It takes focus, that is by choice, and is therefore that much more valuable. It's agape love. It's the word that's listed as the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 22. It's the same as in the Gospel of John in numerous places, including chapter 14, where it says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, chooses to love me. The one who loves me, chooses to love me, will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And of course, it's the word that's in that famous John 3:16, 16, that God so loved the world with this agape love of choice that he gave his only begotten Son. And in Romans 5, God demonstrated his own love for us, a love of choice for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's throughout the New Testament and 1 John, a couple places, and numerous others. This is the love by choice. That's what Paul is asking Timothy and us to pursue. And that love by choice is an important element for the rest of these verses this morning because they are full of a lot of choices to be made. When Paul defines love in his letter to the Romans, he lays it out as a series of choices. In Romans 12, starting in verse 12, it says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. These are all choices in how we act. They're not involuntary responses. And he follows it with verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peace is part of love. So it follows naturally that in our text in 2 Timothy verse 22, that we should pursue peace. Now, there's two primary kinds of peace. There's a a peace that is an absence of strife, a sort of peace by definition. Nobody happens to be throwing blows at each other. And then there's a a peace by effort that is a harmonious relationship, which is the Greek word here, irene, a tranquil peace of harmony between multiple parties. It takes work to have that kind of peace. We have to pursue it, And finally, let's look at the phrasing of the second part of this verse, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Who are these people? They are the ones who call on the Lord for salvation. We give them who give themselves over to him and his will. We can see that in Romans 10. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what we ought to be pursuing. It's not enough even to just run constantly from lusts. Where are you going? There was a teaching back in the middle parts of Luke many months ago in chapter 11 where Jesus has been accused of uh, cleaning demons out of people through the power of the devil, essentially. And he responds with a little teaching here. He says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go and then live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Fleeing is not enough. Having that demon cast out is not enough. That man hasn't filled the space with God. It's left vacant and ready for the demon to move back in with more of his buddies. And it'll be the worst for him. Similarly, if we leave a void where there ought to be God, if we simply flee but don't fill that with anything else, if we don't pursue something also, the enemy will be happy to move right in. If we're not careful, the enemy will come. If we don't both flee and pursue, we leave room for him. And verse 23 says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. I'm going to read that again with a different inflection because it's important don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Does he mean just avoid them, to stop them, to ignore them? The word literally means to refuse them because they're going to be offered. You'll have lots of opportunities to join in these foolish and stupid arguments, but don't let yourself get dragged into it, Timothy. The people having these arguments and quarrels in the church here They're having some trouble as Paul writes this letter, and it's trouble that he predicted in Acts chapter 20. As Paul was preparing to leave the church at Ephesus and leave Timothy behind there, he spoke to the elders of that church saying in Acts 20 verses 29 through 31, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples from them. Or after them, excuse me. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. It's a pretty serious warning that Timothy or that Paul has been giving night and day with tears for three years. And sure enough, even with that warning it comes to pass. The 2 Timothy chapter 2, just before our section, verses 16 through 18, say, Avoid Godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. This name Hymenaeus is the same guy that Paul mentioned in his first letter to Timothy a couple of years before, a man Paul considered shipwrecked in his faith, and says he handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Don't mess with Paul and his teaching. So there's some teachers of bad doctrine around this church. They're circling the church like wolves, waiting to pull people away. And how did they get to be teachers of poor doctrine? From the slippery slope of starting with foolish and stupid arguments. As we see in verse 23 here, let's define those terms foolish and stupid. They mean pretty much what you think they mean. The word foolish here is the word moros, from which we get the word moron. Stupid is defined as ignorance or literally without information. So in other words, these are the kind of arguments that have no barrier to entry. You don't have to know anything to get involved in these things. Anyone can participate, and so we all do. They're easy, right? And they're also easy to get wrapped up in. And they often start out over relatively insignificant things. But they always go the same way. They produce quarrels which sounds like a couple of people sort of hand-fighting at each other. But the Greek word here is makhe, which is a fight, a combat, a battle. Right? It's serious. This is not people exchanging letters to the editor. Okay? This is people with a violent connotation. A quarrel in the church, especially among leadership, is obviously not a good thing. And that's what was happening in the church there at Ephesus. Foolish and stupid arguments don't stay foolish and stupid for very long. They become quarrels. And those quarrels become rifts. And those rifts become divisions in doctrine. And then the church breaks. And when the church is divided and broken, it's distracted from God and the gospel. And the enemy has opportunity to step in. When there's a hole in the church or in Christians, the enemy is ready to fill it. Moreover, in this verse, we see there's an obvious insistence to know better. Timothy knows better, Paul says, and so do we. It's not just about foolish and stupid arguments, but with all sorts of things. We know it's better not to tug on things at the Thanksgiving table because you know it's going to unravel, and a little tiny argument is going to turn into something bigger. So why do we do it? Because we have these youthful lusts pursuing us, and if we're not actively running away from them, pursuing something better, those predators are going to catch up to us when we slow down in our flight from them. Greed and envy and ambition and pride and the desire to be right all the time. We should be outrunning these things, fleeing these things, and yet we get caught up and wrapped up in them, and we start stupid and foolish arguments that we know are going to lead to quarrels. And those quarrels eventually lead to a broken church that is distracted from God and the gospel. Unfortunately, Paul is gracious enough not just to leave us with a partial teaching here, but a complete one. He doesn't just say what not to do, but he says what to do. Not just run away, but pursue. And not just avoid foolish and stupid arguments that make you quarrelsome, but verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. The Lord's servant here is, uh, this is bond servant, slave is the word. This is not just for pastors and teachers only, even though the word for minister uh, has some slavery connotations to it, some servitude connotations. All Christians are servants of the Lord. You can see this in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where he says, "...therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." We can see it in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see it in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever we do, we are serving the Lord Christ, and we are all called to be servants of God. And so we as servants of God ought not to be quarrelsome, Paul is writing here, attracted to trouble. We ought not to get led into foolish and stupid arguments. This manifests itself in the church when we become prone to being quarrelsome in words within it? And then how much more so are we willing to be in quarrel with the world? And what kind of a witness is that? Paul says instead to be kind to everyone. Just people who share your political views? No. Just those who look like you? No. Just those who are kind to you? No. Literally everyone. He says be kind. That word means gentle and mild. The only other time it's used is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where they're discussing some time the disciples spent with some folks and said, Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. That's the word there, that kindness, that care, is as a nursing mother cares for her children. It's a very gentle and mild love. Be like that, Paul's writing, and be able to teach... Again, this letter is written to a teacher, but it's not just for teachers because we are all to be teachers, as we just saw in chapter 28 of Matthew a moment ago. So, when Pastor Matt defines the body of the church, or the the church as the body of Christ, excuse me, that means that uh, if you and I are the church, then whenever we're interacting with somebody, that person's a church. If you're at the grocery store talking to the checkout clerk, that person's a church. Now, if you're at the dog park and your dog attacks somebody else's dog and they come storming over to you, that person's at church. And you wouldn't spend your time at church shying away from the Word of God. Now, there's also a practical reason that all Christians need to be able and ready to share and teach the gospel and righteousness, which is that when you're out in the world and you have an opportunity to teach someone about the gospel and you can't do it, that's a void in the church. That's a void the enemy is only too willing to fill up. So how do we learn to teach? By using and understanding the Scripture. Of course, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We're also told that a servant of God oughtn't to be resentful. Now, a resentful servant is one who is bitter about the work that he's tasked with doing because they're not having their youthful lusts met. And that's not the kind of heart with which God calls us to work. So somehow we have to avoid being chased down by these youthful lusts. And it's a corporate effort. It takes buy-in. Verse 25, we'll see that. It says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And again, I'm going to read that twice. This time with a different inflection. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. It says opponents here. It's not saying non-Christians, okay? The kind of opponents that Paul was warning Timothy about, uh, that Timothy was facing in the church at Ephesus, were in fact believers, or at least claimed to be. People like Hymenaeus, whose doctrine was flawed and had moved away from correct teaching. So it's not unbelievers necessarily or only, but people who aren't fleeing their youthful lusts like wanting to be right all the time. Now, Paul is holding Timothy to a very high standard of living. He tells him to live in certain ways, to act in certain ways, to say certain things, to follow certain examples. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 says, "He has saved us and called us to a holy life," Timothy. And verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 say, "What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching." With faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So, if Timothy has been taught to live in certain ways, to pursue righteousness, then an opponent of Timothy is going to be an opponent of those things, an opponent to righteousness. The second word in this verse is must. It's not ought to be, or can be, or should be. Because if there are opponents of you, Timothy, who knows and lives with righteousness, then they are opponents of what is righteous, of what is godly, and that must be confronted. Must. It's not optional, church. So clearly, we must gently instruct opponents. Now, this phrase is tough because often we don't want to gently instruct opponents. I have a hard time gently instructing the T ball kids that I coach, I have a hard time gently instructing my own children. I have a hard time gently instructing my chickens. I don't have enough patience for poultry, let alone people. And yet, I have to gently instruct opponents of righteousness? That's not an easy thing to ask. So that word instruct, it means teaching. It also has a, a, a form of meaning correcting. The primary definition is pi, of this word paiduo is of training children is how it's used. So you see that gentleness, that mildness again. So gently instruct as if you were teaching a child, not for the purpose of showing them how much better we are than them or to show them how bad they are, but to show them what right is so they may know righteousness and in the hope that God will grant them repentance that leads them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, there's a spot where it's interesting that it isn't certain here. It doesn't say that God certainly will grant them repentance, and that's not a knock on God's power. God certainly can grant it to anyone. It's pointing out rather that we don't know who God will give it to because we don't know the end game of every gentle instruction that we give. We don't know whether every gently instructed opponent will seek repentance. But that's no reason not to give them gentle instruction. We give gentle instruction. We teach righteousness. We share the gospel in the hope that they will ask for and God will grant them repentance. God grants repentance, which leads them to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this word leading suggests that it's not an instantaneous thing, it's a breadcrumb trail, it's a process. And why should they want to get to the knowledge of the truth? Well, that one's simple because knowledge of the truth is what helps keep the enemy at bay. He wants to sneak in amid uncertainty, and he loves voids where there's no knowledge of the truth. It's how the enemy first attacked. He questioned Eve's certainty of her knowledge of the truth. Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And that's all it took to start undermining the truth, to disrupt the knowledge of the truth. So those in and outside the church who teach false doctrine or engage in foolish and stupid arguments that lead to quarrels are engaged in the enemy's task. And we must defend against it. And we do so with the knowledge of the truth. In Ephesians 6, where Paul is writing about the armor of God, he gives its purpose in verse 11. It says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Pretty clear what the purpose is. And what's the first element in the armor of God? Anyone? The belt of truth, right? Stand firm then, verse 14. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So is our goal in gently instructing our opponents of righteousness for them to realize how superior we are? Is it to make internet memes at their expense? To mock them? No. It's so that they can become like us, part of the brethren. So we do it in the hopes that they will seek and then be granted repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that is fundamental in warding off the attacks of the enemy. That is why we gently instruct opponents. And guess what? You can't do that if you're resentful. You can't do it if you can't teach the basics of the gospel. You can't do it if you're not kind. You can't do it if you're so busy being caught up in foolish and stupid arguments that you end up in quarrels all the time. When does a quarrel change anyone's mind? All it does is leave people bitter and hurting and armorless. And it's our job to help others put on that armor against the enemy. I played football in high school many moons ago, not that you can tell anymore. And one of the most difficult things I've ever tried to do is to adjust a pair of shoulder pads. Okay, it's infinitely easier to do by having somebody else adjust the straps while you're wearing them. Okay, these supposedly manly men, boys really, helping each other get dressed. But there's no shame in asking for that help because you recognize that there's a better chance of survival when your teammate has his equipment properly adjusted. So we teach people how to put the armor on. We don't make fun of them for not having it. That's why gentleness is key. Yelling and scolding and defaming isn't effective. In fact, it plays right into the enemy's hands. He loves strife because strife leads to arguments, and arguments lead to quarrels, and quarrels lead to rifts, and rifts become divisions in doctrine, and then that leads to broken churches that are distracted from God and the gospel. And in addition to knowledge of the truth, we gently instruct in the hope that, verse 26, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Why do we gently instruct opponents? Because they need our help. Opponents of righteousness are trapped, ensnared by the devil. And this phrase, come to their, come to their senses, suggests that being in right mind with God is the norm. It's to be expected. It should be the default. Right? that someone who is in their senses will come to knowledge of the truth. This is really encouraging, that loving God is not an aberration, but the way it should be. So what is this trap of the devil? It's a snare, an animal trap, that you get tempted into and then can't escape. It's the foolish and stupid arguments that are so easy to engage in that lead to quarrels. It's a trap. Now, opponents of righteousness have been taken captive from somewhere, some were more righteous, a place of right living. They've been taken captive for a purpose, which is to do the devil's will. Wow. What is the devil's will? It's that division that we talked about earlier, that void of knowledge of the truth. Some people think they can ignore God's will and substitute it their own. But guess what? If you're not doing God's will, whose will do you think you're doing? Because it's not yours. How does the devil make them or convince them to do his will? It's not really that hard, actually. I often explain this to people by saying that the devil doesn't have to make you flip 180 degrees from righteousness. All he's got to do is alter your trajectory slightly, and pretty soon you're way off course. It doesn't take much. Just enough that you'll start a foolish and stupid argument that leads to a quarrel, that leads to a rift, that leads to a split, that leads to a difference in doctrine, at least we're broken church distracted from God and the gospel. A few degrees is all it takes. And so knowing the stakes here, the work of the enemy, the must in verse 25, is no longer just a simple statement. It's a plea. They must be. They've got to be. Their lives are at stake. And if we don't gently instruct them, they'll continue to do the work of the enemy undermining the truth and causing quarrels, which ultimately force people away from God. These captives need help. Now, fortunately, Paul explains here that it is possible to help people who are trapped by the devil. These captives can be released, and it doesn't have to be a prisoner exchange. It can be a straight-up jailbreak. So how do we do it? By gently instructing opponents. Opponents in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. We have to do our part in the hope that they'll do their part and come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil because the devil cannot overcome sound reason that is a result of knowledge of the truth. He cannot penetrate the well-kept, properly worn armor of God. He cannot. Eve didn't use it properly. Many people today don't use it properly. Some of us here don't use it properly. In the end, it's another choice. Just like the choice to love God with agape love. So, Will you choose to be one of those who succumbs to foolish and stupid arguments because you haven't fled youthful lusts, regardless of your age? Will you continue to contribute to people departing from the faith, from the truth, Will you leave people in the captivity of the devil to do his will or worse, be willingly captive yourself? Or will you instead pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Will you have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments? Will you avoid quarrels that lead to broken churches and instead be kind to everyone, not resentful? Will you gently instruct opponents of righteousness in the hope that they will seek and receive repentance and come to a knowledge of the truth and come to their senses and escape? Will you help them escape? Will you help your brother or sister next to you escape? If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, will you accept their help to escape the trap of the devil? Will you fall down before the Lord and repent and be given repentance and be led to a knowledge of the truth? I hope so. Paul did too. Paul felt it was so important that he wrote this impassioned letter to Timothy knowing that he was struggling with this in his church. That there were teachers outside circling like wolves, ready to pull people away, to adjust them a few degrees from the path of righteousness. The grace of God awaits those who were formerly captive, ready to wrap them up in a new life because the devil has no right to those who choose Christ. Paul wrote earlier to Timothy in his first letter, about three years before this one, in chapter 2, starting in verse 3, God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, willingly choose to love us that much. That's what God did. He willingly chose to love us that much. Because God wants you, all of us, and all those we come in contact with as teachers and brothers and sisters in Christ, teachers of righteousness, people living right lives. He wants all of us, to flee from the enemy and pursue him, to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace, because they lead to a knowledge of the truth in faith that saves. God wants us released from captivity, and he's provided the way in Christ. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that are so deep and so profound that We cannot possibly fully comprehend them or ever get to the depths of them, Lord. We thank you that you've brought us all here today to learn about what you have said, learn about how to live, that we have an opportunity in this most gracious space to flee from youthful lusts, to pursue righteousness and things that lead to you, that you've brought us here with a chance to Begin to learn, to begin down the breadcrumb trail of learning how to love you properly, to teach others properly, to live lives that people will recognize as holy. We thank you for the gentle instruction you provide. We thank you that you provide repentance. And we ask, Lord, that you will help us all to come to our senses and escape from the trap of the devil who was taken some captive, Lord. You were the mighty jailbreaker We love you, Lord. Amen.